All right, welcome back, everyone. As we get settled in, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19 as we conclude that chapter this morning. So we're in Acts chapter 19. So we'll be picking it up today in verse 11. And a reading down through the end, as you know, I like to, to read the passage for context so that as we're working our way through it, you have a, a sense of where we are and of what we're covering. So Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, uh, fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds." Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome." So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship." And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, 
and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Lord, thank you for your word. We trust that you are working it into our hearts, and we trust that you will speak to us through it this morning. God, help us to learn and to glean from this passage of Scripture all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recall a couple of weeks ago, as we finished chapter 18 and moved into chapter 19, that in the the beginning of chapter 19, there was this discussion where Paul had come into the, the town of Ephesus. Remember, in the end of chapter 18, he was wrapping up his second journey, and as he was leaving there, um, he said, I can't uh, visit with you right now. I'll come back later, God willing. So in chapter 19, we find him coming back. God did will and allowed it to happen. And as he uh, came to um, Ephesus, he came in and he found about 12 disciples there. Remember, he had a discussion with them as he uh, seemingly noticed something that was missing, that was lacking in their lives. So as he came in, he said to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, and to what then were you baptized? In other words, how did you become believers in Christ? And so they said, into John's baptism. And Paul, of course, said, uh, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance. And Although it's not stated here, we know that John, as he preached, said, uh, Behold, there is one coming after myself. Uh, I am preparing the way of the Lord, the Messiah. And so uh, John preached this baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, we covered this last time, but there's some things I wanted to mention because they they flow into what we're covering today. That as Paul had laid his hands on them and they received the anointing or the baptism of the Spirit, remember we talked about the fact that Scripture is very clear that when anyone comes to believe in Christ, that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. There's no question about that. But what we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts is that 
In most cases, there seems to be a subsequent experience where the Spirit comes upon people. And we talked about those three Greek prepositions, para alongside, in, to come into, and hapi, or coming upon. And so the Spirit came upon them here, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied here in verse 6. Now the point of coming back to revisit this this morning is to help us understand that when our Lord saves us and when he puts his spirit within us, that there seems to be a yielding within our own lives, a desire to go deeper, a desire for the Lord to work in our lives. And as we sang in that closing song, more of you, I want more of you. We tend to sip where we could drink deeply. We drink deeply where we could wade in and we wade in where we could plunge in and swim. Most of us need to be encouraged to go deeper and further into the things of the Spirit. One commentator said, if someone doesn't seem to know if they have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, it's fair to assume that they don't have it. If you have it, you should know it. Give a man an electric shock and I warrant you he will know it. But if he has the Holy Spirit, how much more will he know it? This isn't something... Uh, to be confused about. We can know, and a person can know if they are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ezra's Old Testament prophecy in chapter 47, the Lord gave Ezra this vision of water flowing from the temple, and I would encourage you to go there and read that uh, chapter Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12. But in that passage, the Lord spoke there about how coming out of the temple, and of course the temple was the presence of God, that there was this river and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And so uh, Ezekiel was, was brought by an angel in this vision to understand what was happening. And as he took him a little further each time downstream, uh, it came to a place where the river was wider and deeper. And as he went a little further each time, the first time he came up to his ankles. And then the next time as he was shown the river and where it was going and what it was doing. The next time it was a little deeper, it was up to his knees and then up to his waist. And eventually that river became so deep that it was over his head and that no one could pass through it. And it says here about this passage in the, the end of Ezekiel, it says, but its swamps and its marshes, uh, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse, uh, along the bank of the river on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So this picture in Ezekiel 47 is really a picture of the Spirit of God flowing forth from his presence. And whenever the Spirit of God goes forth from the lives of God's people... Good things happen. People are encouraged. People are edified. People are built up in their faith. God will use the gifts that he gives his people for other people's good and for his glory. People will be healed. People will be lifted up and strengthened. They will be encouraged. And so this idea of being not only indwelt by the Spirit, but being filled with the Spirit 
is important because it signifies a turning point in our lives that we were saved. And remember with salvation, the word salvation means to be delivered. So we are delivered from something. We are delivered from our sins. We are delivered from our old way of life. And we are delivered unto something that is better because our sins are now forgiven. We've realized that. We've come into faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God has come to live within us. And if we are willing, the Spirit of God will come upon us. And that sets the stage for what's happening today in our passage. A little bit of background briefly on the city of Ephesus as we get into this study, because it affects how we understand what's happening today. The city of Ephesus was in a strategic position along the road that it was on. It was called the Treasure House of Asia, but it was also known as the mother of materialism and ambition. It was the site of the Temple of Artemis, also called Diana. One is Latin, one is Greek. Uh, One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 marbled pillars, which rose 60 feet to support a gorgeous ceiling, many of them inlaid with gold and rare gems. The temple's huge canopy was covering an area of 425 feet in length and 200 feet in width. And it housed this multi-breasted image of Artemis or Diana supposed to have fallen from the stars, and as we read this morning from Zeus, that Zeus sent this goddess down to the city of Ephesus. But it also is true that Ephesus became the center of banking for that region. In fact, that temple became the central bank for that region of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. We also know that Ephesus became a collecting place for superstition, for dark arts, meaning magic. It became a cesspool of occult. And Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers later, and he said this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesus became a watering hole for every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal. Con artists, murders, and perverts all found the climate of Ephesus unusually agreeable. In fact, around the edges of the temple itself were declared a place of refuge. So if you went there, even though you were guilty of the worst kind of crime, you could go cross that border into the outer edge and you would be on safe ground and no one could touch you there. So it's with that understanding we come into verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul there in Ephesus so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. This is one of those things that we read in scripture that we, we look at and this is, this is sort of like what Jesus did when, remember he was healing people. Sometimes he would speak to people and just say, be healed, and they were healed, or maybe a servant or a master would come and say, would you, would you speak over my, my son or my daughter or my servant? And Jesus would send word back and say, your faith has made them well, go back and go in peace. Or remember the time that Jesus was healing a blind man, and he, in that situation, bent over, spit in the mud, made little mud cakes, and put them on the man's eyes. And the point is that uh, Jesus rarely did things the same way twice. And as we look throughout the Bible, we find that as God worked miracles, 
Often he did things in different ways in different times or in different places. And here, notice it says in verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles. So these were not things that Paul did. These were things that God did. And so these handkerchiefs and these aprons, and the word handkerchief there could easily be translated sweatband, these were the things that Paul was using while he was working. Remember, we had been told he was teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus. And their work day would be early in the morning, around 7 or so, and they would work till about 11. It would get hot. They would shut down from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then they would pick back up at 4 and work into the evening. So Paul would work to support himself in the ministry. And as he wiped the sweat or he took off his apron, perhaps to go to the restroom or something like that, he'd come back and these things would be gone. And people were taking them and laying them on the sick and they were being healed and people with with all sorts of diseases. And we look at that and we say, that's just so crazy. But it was something that God chose to do. It was something that God did in that moment to reach those people, to minister to those people, to let them know that he was present among them. It's sad that people have taken this and tried to make it a a practice, a healing practice. Uh, But it doesn't, there's nothing that would indicate that this is a normal thing. This was just a one-off thing that God did during this time through the hands of Paul. I like what this commentator said about understanding how God works. He says, these handkerchiefs were the cloths Paul used to wipe away the sweat while working. Uh, The handkerchiefs and the aprons were symbols which God chose to employ in order to underscore the, the characteristic of the apostle which made him a channel of the power of God. In the same way, Moses' rod was a symbol. Cast it on the ground, it became a serpent, lifted up over the waters, and it caused them to roll back. There was nothing magical about the rod itself. It was the symbol of something about Moses which God honored. So these sweatbands and trade aprons were symbols of, to, of the honest, dignified humility of heart, the servant character which manifested and released the power of God. He went on to say, the power of God is released through a man or a woman whose heart is so utterly committed that he or she is ready to invest diligent labor to make the gospel available even if they need to stoop to a lowly trade. So these things that God was doing was causing a stir. God was allowing these sweatbands and these aprons to be used to heal people. And then in verse 13, we find that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, these itinerant Jewish exorcists did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were not saved. They didn't know Christ, but they did see the power of God. And just like in Acts chapter 8, where that man Simon, who was a sorcerer, got saved, but then he saw what the Holy Spirit was doing, and he wanted to purchase that gift in the same way these Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. You know, the name of Jesus Christ is not a swear word. And the name of Jesus Christ is not an incantation to be spoken over people. His name is holy. 
His name is reverent, and his name cannot be used in such a way. So in verse 14, there were seven sons of Siva, of Jewish, a Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Now, if you're on the receiving end of that, that probably sent shivers up your spine. It caused the hair to stand up on the back of your neck. And then the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And so this certainly tells us that we should not be messing around with the occult. There's this beautiful verse in the end of the book of Jude where it says that, even the angel of the Lord, when he encountered Satan and they, they, were, they were struggling over the body of Moses, it says the angel of God spoke to the devil and said, the Lord rebuke you. Even then, an angel of God did not mess around with demons. And so here we have people, these Jewish itinerant exorcists, attempting to venture into an area that they should have never gone. They had no connection with Jesus Christ, no personal relationship with him. And yet they tried to invoke the name of Jesus Christ to accomplish something for which they had no right to do. This became known uh, both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Isn't it amazing how God himself can take a situation and turn it around for his glory? As this thing happened, as God allowed these demons to beat up these men, God caused it to create fear. It says fear fell on them all. That's that holy reverence, that awe of God. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They chose, they tried to cheapen the name of the Lord Jesus by using it as an incantation. Instead, God caused it through that demonic beating that they received for the the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. And notice this, we'll, we'll see it a little bit later in this same passage And we've seen it all throughout the book of Acts, that when God is working, where there's a genuine move of God, we always see this. The name of Jesus was magnified. The name of God was glorified. And that's how you know that God is involved. When people are speaking of themselves, when they are glorifying themselves, or turn and run in the other direction, God will not share his glory with another God himself will get the glory, and if we don't give it to him, he will take it. And so God prefers, of course, our cooperation in that process. So the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, verse 18, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Another sign that God is moving, that the Holy Spirit is at work, is that people are confessing and telling their deeds. They're they're repenting. They're saying, hey, here's what I was involved in. It was wrong. And I'm turning from it. One of the interesting observations about the ministry of the Apostle Paul is that uh, believers and unbelievers became sensitized to their sin. I don't know if you've ever had a moment alone with the Lord, 
where you've realized your sin. And before the Lord, you've had to repent. Perhaps there were even tears of repentance. Perhaps there was weeping. When that happens, God is working. God is moving. Don't mistake that for depression. Understand it for what it is that, that God is working in your life and he's, he's quickening our spirit to righteousness, to justice, to the things that are good. And he's drawing us toward himself. So many people who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, verse 19, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Translating that from that time to this time, we're probably talking about at least $3 million. And they took their books their incantations about the dark arts, the magic arts, all of those things that had a tie to evil, that had a tie to the past, that had a tie to the things that were demonic and that were not of the Lord. And notice what they did. They brought them together and burned them in the sight of all. They did this in public. They repented publicly. They told not just the church, not just the believers, but they told the unbelievers. They did this in an open way. They said, we are turning from our sin and from darkness to the light. We are turning to serve the one true and the living God. You see, God was working. It wasn't something people did in the the closed doors of a church. He did it out in the open and in public. And the thing that we must always remember about verse 19, and if you don't write in your Bible, do it now, underline verse 19 and circle it, because this is a turning point in people's lives. And one of the things that we've seen throughout the book of Acts is this, is that when God moves, when his spirit speaks, when we become convicted and we turn to Jesus Christ, that there is a point of turning, a point of conversion. And from that point in our lives going forward, things are different. Things should be different. Why? Because the the darkness is gone. The light has come. The lie has gone. The truth has come. And so the things of the old life must go. You see, there's nothing there for us. If we try to hold on to things from the past, you see, it's not okay. It's not good. There's nothing there for us. I've, I've seen people over the course of my life, after many years of professing Christ, all of a sudden they start listening to their old music. Or they start doing things that they did before, going, oh, I know where the boundaries are, it's okay, I, I can go this far. You see, there's nothing there for us in the past. Nothing good can come from going back and doing those things that we did before we came to know Christ. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man or any person, any woman is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For any of us who say we know Jesus, we have to be able to look back and to say that there is something different. In fact, what if you were challenged today to write on a piece of paper answering this question, what has your Christian faith cost you? What would you write down? Or maybe put another way, what has changed in my life since Jesus entered my life? 
a point of turning. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he said, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, all Christians must do this today. We must remove images, get rid of books, delete computer files, statues, charms, games, whatever they are. Uh, we, we need to get rid of them. Anything that's connected to the old life or the demonic world, they should be destroyed because they're of no use to others. I don't think we should even think, hey, I could sell that and make some money. Just get rid of it. Burn it. These people burn their books in the open square. Spurgeon said regarding this issue, you will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come and trust in him, you will make short work of it. Be done with it. Be done with it forever. To that list, I would add things, and I think it needs to be said, things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, fortune-telling, horoscopes, reiki, uh, just superstitions, hey, a black cat crossed my path, don't walk under a ladder, Halloween, horror movies, movies about the occult, such as Harry Potter, there's many more, uh, and, and things like this. We need to be done with those things. I, I actually heard a, a Christian a, a pastor, this was about three years ago or so, on a... Uh, a radio show where people, you know, were, you know, writing in or sending, you know, questions and whatnot. And someone had written in and asked a question about Harry Potter. He said, is it okay for my kids as a believer to allow them to watch and participate in Harry Potter? His answer was, it's a harmless fantasy and fiction just like any other thing and it's not a problem. This was a pastor giving that advice to hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many people were listening to him on the radio that day, but as I heard it, I, I was in my car, I remember, and I pounded my fist on the steering wheel, and I said, no, we cannot give permission for those kinds of things to people. These things are evil. Harry Potter, I have no axe to grind with Harry Potter, but it was about, you know, magic and demons and, and warlocks and witches and all of those things, but they made it seem fun. And we can say to our kids, hey, it's just fantasy. Don't worry about it. We need to stay as far away from those things as we can, and especially if we had those things in our past. You know, there was a, a gentleman who came here for a few years, he and his family, and his testimony was that he was involved in Wicca before he got saved. And when he got saved, he was like this. He, he was like, burn the books. I mean, he was converted. And whenever, I mean, he had this strong gift of exhortation. And whenever he heard of anyone, you know, walking around the fringes of these things, he was like, no, stop, run, get as far away as you can. Give it to me, I'll burn it for you. And so we have to have boundaries in our lives. But you see, there's those obvious things like the occult that we shouldn't be involved in. But you know, with, with today's world for us in the 21st century, and I'll read this to you, and it's, this is hard. You know, as, as I was reading it, I was convicted myself, and I was just asking the Lord, is this something just for me, or should I share this? 
this person said, today, the Christian church is clothed with dead leaves of materialism and sensuality. A majority of Christian believers have been desensitized to the lures and the poisons of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Multitudes within the professing church are not only thoroughly infatuated with the charms of mammon, but are practicing sensualists who enjoy the most degrading entertainment with no remorse whatsoever. Today, many believers witness is anemic and corrupted. Much of the church is clamoring to get onto the world's bandwagon. Christianity sells. So give people a gospel Grammy or add a gospel number to the concert to balance out the repertoire and appease Christian critics. But it is impossible to be filled with the Spirit and to set our minds on things below. It is impossible to be filled with the Spirit and to live for the dollar. It is impossible to be filled with the Spirit and watch a drama that feeds the basest appetites of the flesh. Paul said, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. In Acts 19.20, as we continue... It says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Why? Because these people repented. They did it decisively. They did it publicly. They said, we're not going back. And this reminds us as God, remember, was using these sweatbands and these claws, and that sort of sparked this whole thing. It reminds us of the tradition of Daniel, where Daniel stood in the lion's den. He said, I will not confess to a false god. Remember when David, when he went to deliver the food to his brothers as they were on the front line and there was Goliath coming out every day to mock. And David happened to be there that day and he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David was by himself in the middle of thousands of people who were afraid to stand up and yet he stood up and he said, I will declare it. I'll go to battle against this uncircumcised Philistine. When these things were accomplished, verse 21, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And we know from other accounts that Paul desired to go back to Jerusalem. He was collecting an offering to go to the Jerusalem church who was uh, under uh, a drought and under hard times at that point in time. We also know in Romans chapter one, verses eight through 15, Paul pours out his heart about his longing to go to Rome and to see them and to visit them and to encourage and build up their faith. We find in verse 22 that he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Remember Macedonia, Acts 16, the vision that the Lord gave Paul. And that's, of course, where he found the Philippian church and where God did great things. So he's sending Timothy and Erastus back into Macedonia. And notice we're told of Timothy and Erastus that these were two of those who ministered to him. 
You know, today we've corrupted so many things and we have, you know, ministry leaders who have personal servants and all that kind of stuff. But understand in a legitimate way that there need to be helpers in the ministry. There need to be people who come alongside and and do all the things that have to be done for the ministry to take place. Those are good things. And these men, Timothy and Erastus, were obviously given over as servants by the Spirit to Paul to help him, to assist him. And it seems that God sort of had this sort of rotating door of people coming and going who came and assisted Paul in the ministry. And part of the reason for that was that God was doing great and mighty things in and through the life of Paul. And so there need to be helpers who come alongside. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Remember, we've already encountered this phrase before, that the unbelievers were referring to the Christians as the way. And I think it's a fitting uh, label to give to people who believe in Christ because Jesus, of course, spoke and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so for a certain man, verse 24, named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So he was one of the chief artisans or craftsmen there. And of course, because of the Temple of Diana being there, uh, as you can imagine, and of course, all of us have probably been somewhere on vacation or whatever, and there's always some little trinket or something of where you've been, you know, a, a, a church or a tower, you know, Eiffel Tower, you know, whatever. We see these little things, right? Well, there was a trade. There was a whole industry built up around the Temple of Diana. And so there were lots of tradesmen, a silversmiths, coppersmiths, all of that who were making these little trinkets, these little obscene multi-breasted images to Diana. And they were being sold and, and made, you know, thousands, millions of dollars for these people who uh, served the temple ministry there. And so Demetrius called them all together, the workers of a similar occupation, and said, men, you know that we have this our prosperity by this trade. This is how we make our living. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul, now listen to the credit he's giving to Paul. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Well, Paul was preaching the truth and people were getting saved by the truth. But this was beginning to affect their trade, this was beginning to affect the revenue. So this became a problem. And the interesting thing to note here is that Paul was not on a campaign against Diana. Paul was on a campaign for Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction for us because so often, especially take today's current world with what's going on, we can be seen as people who are against this and against that. I think it would be much better, much wiser if we were known as people who were for Jesus Christ and who were for the gospel. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the whole world worship. That's the extent of Diana or Artemis worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel 
companions. The interesting thing is they rushed into this theater. This theater is still standing today. It's a 24,000-seat amphitheater. If you ever take a Footsteps of Paul tour, you can go there and see it. And so the whole city rushed into this theater. They filled it up to overflowing, standing room only. And this, this madness ensued. And when Paul wanted to go in, you know, Paul was, think about what he did at Athens. You know, this, Paul's like, man, what an opportunity to preach to 24,000 people. This is incredible. And he wanted to go into that. And yet the disciples would not allow him. Because they figured, Paul, if you go in there, you're going to get torn limb from limb. And some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So he had, had all these people coming around him saying, Paul, you don't want to go in there, man. I know, I know you want to, but don't do it. Some, therefore, verse 32, cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not even know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. In other words, here's why we're here. Here's why we're coming against Paul. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. We are told later, and the commentators believe that this Alexander, who's mentioned here in uh, Acts 19, It was probably the same man that Paul wrote about when he wrote to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he said this, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also, Timothy, must beware of him for he has greatly resisted our words. So this man, Alexander, must have been an influential man. And remember earlier as Paul was ministering in the synagogues there. Remember the Jews refuted him and stood against him and that's why he withdrew aside to the, the school of Tyrannus. But these people were getting saved. New life was coming forth. Repentance was changing the way they were thinking. And these were all reasons why the people were rebelling. The books were being burned. Lives were being changed. A true revival was happening. An awakening was happening. And when the city clerk, verse 35, had quieted the crowd, the thing to know about the city clerk is don't think of them like we think of the city clerk today. In our cities, this man was an official of Rome. He had a red robe. He, He carried the Roman authority. So when he walked out to speak before these people, he went out in his red robe with the the gold uh, trim and all of that. And so as people saw him, they quieted down. And he said, men of Ephesus, What man is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is a temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Now, of course, any city under Roman rule was under heavy-handed Roman rule. Rome frowned upon any type of insurrection or uprising. And if it happened, people would be punished. They would be put to death. It would be dealt with swiftly. And he says here in verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Well, God is using a city official to defend Paul. Imagine that. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. 
let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. So God uses this pagan man, this city clerk, to come out and to bring calm to the storm. And he says, For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. In other words, if someone came in and examined us and say, what was that and why did it happen? They would all go, I don't know. Just we, people started yelling and this crowd went into the theater and we went to see, you know, the mob mentality. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now we're not done with Ephesus yet. That's going to extend into chapter 20, which we'll get to next time. But your assignment is to go and read the letter to the Ephesians, but also to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Before I finish that, I want to close with a story. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard is often very difficult to read, but his parable of the wild duck is a splendid illustration of how the soul declines from its ideals and becomes satisfied with lower standards. And here it is. Flying northward across Europe with his friends one spring, a certain duck landed in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. Enjoying some of their corn, he stayed for an hour, then a day, then a week, then a month. Finally, Relishing the good fare and safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. One autumn day, when his wild duck friends were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard and the duck heard their cries. He felt the thrill of joy and delight, and with great flapping of wings, he rose into the air to join his old comrades in their flight. But he found that his good fare had made him so soft and heavy that he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn." So he dropped back again to the barnyard and said to himself, Oh, well, my life is safe here, and the food is good. And every spring and autumn, when he heard the wild ducks honking, his eyes would gleam for a moment, and he would begin to flap his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them. If God is calling us, whether for salvation or for increased service, by all means, we ought to respond now. Perhaps he is asking us to say, I am willing to spend and to be expended. Or perhaps he is calling us to lay aside some personal goals or some entertainments or even some vices. We must respond with a life-giving, yes, Lord, while we can still hear his voice. Coming back to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus himself wrote a letter to these seven churches, and we believe that these seven churches were established during this time of the end of Paul's second or beginning of his third missionary journey. And of course, in Acts 19, we are in the beginning of his third journey. So here we have roughly 30 years later, after this point in time, that Jesus himself is writing these letters through the Apostle John to these seven churches and to this church that on that day 
there was either riot or revival. Some rioted and some were revived. Thirty years later, Jesus writes these words to that church who on that day were hot for him. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Not lost, left. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There is no church today in Ephesus, folks. The lampstand has been removed. And notice the words that the Lord Jesus spoke to them, which were the very words that caused them to repent way back then. You know, unless you repent and do the first works, I will come quickly. So what will it be for us? Will it be riot or revival? Will we be like this duck who found a safe, comfortable place to settle into? and then just settle for mediocrity and settle for comfort and settle for all of these things that we've been talking about this morning? Or will we be challenged? Will we allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to work in our lives, the people of God, to stir us up? Maybe today we need to repent of some things. Maybe, as it were, we need to burn some books. And if that's true for you today, then I encourage you to do it as we close in prayer. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ this morning. There is no time like right now to give your heart to Christ, to turn to him just as these Ephesian believers did and allow the spirit of God to come in and to cleanse our lives and to to wash our minds and to purge us of all of the stuff that we are a part of or that is involved in our lives that has nothing to do with the Lord. And in fact, it mocks his name so often. We need to get rid of those things. And, and I'm praying that if a riot comes, that the riot brings revival. But I would much rather have something happening than to be like this duck, sitting in a pen, living my life out fat, dumb, and happy, and doing nothing for the Lord. God called us, God saved us for a purpose, folks. We all have gifts. We all have been given the same calling. We're not all called to be apostles, but we are all called to love and to serve Jesus Christ in some way. And the scriptures, I believe, are very clear that every believer has been given a gift, if not multiple gifts. And I think it's incumbent upon us to read the scriptures, determine what those gifts are, and say, Lord, how do I use this gift for your glory? Show me how to use it, Lord. And I believe that he will do just that. What has your Christian faith cost you? Lord, thank you this morning for your love, for your wisdom, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, we love you. We renew this morning, Lord, our commitment to you. And Lord, we want to be like those Ephesians who burned their books and who turned from dead things to serve the living and the true God. Lord, we want there to be a difference in our lives, that we want there to be light and truth coming forth from our lives. We want the zeal and the passion of the Lord. We want more of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.